Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Follow along with me if you would. I'm in the ESV this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and worship you, God. You are our supreme joy and delight, and it gives us pleasure to give you all glory and honor and praise. I pray that we would worship you this morning by the hearing of the word. I pray that your spirit would work through me and in the hearts of everyone here, and that we would uh, be more like Christ today. Father, we love you. And pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's, um, it, it's my pleasure to bring it to you this morning. And it really, more than any other passage, describes what it means to be saved. The meaning of salvation, what exactly happens when a person is saved, and how that process works is described in these ten verses. And that really is, perhaps surprisingly so, necessary in our world today, is it not? People don't exactly understand Christianity. They don't exactly understand what is meant uh, when we talk about salvation. I was talking with someone recently explaining the gospel to him, and he was, man, he was tracking all along, explaining, you know, that, that we are, you know, that we're dead in our sins, and that God came down and saved us, and he's agreeing, yes, 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 you know, I believe, I have faith, I've been to church, and it all sounded very good to him, and I was a little confused because I didn't think of him as a Christian, and so I, I just, I just sort of slow played it. I thought, well, we'll see We'll, we'll see where this goes. And as we continued on in the conversation, um, we talked a little bit later about uh, uh, his religious beliefs and how it might go later on in his life. And um, he explained how, though he had accepted Christ, how he was still very interested in Buddhism. And that seemed like something that he might want to know more about and maybe follow, and maybe that's how he would raise his children. And I remember being so confused, thinking, you had, you had just professed faith in Christ And yet there's no problem combining that and adding on 
any other religion. It's a huge, huge need to properly understand what it means to be saved. The passage we're going to read today is going to talk about three stages in the Christian life. That's what we're going to see in the text. Three stages in the Christian life for the purpose in order that we would glorify God because of his kindness toward us. And so the first stage we're going to see is talking about our past. Our past. If you look with me and just follow along in verse 1, it starts out with a very simple statement. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's it. You were dead. That is the first condition of our, um, of our past. Paul is, talking to, Paul is talking to Christians here, and he's trying to explain what they were like before they were saved. He wants them to understand exactly what happened prior to their salvation. And so the first thing is that you were dead in trespasses. And that is fairly self-explanatory. You guys know what dead means. It means that it's completely without stimuli. There's no response. It is lifeless. It is completely unable to do anything, really. When I was young, I was, I, it fascinated me that you could hit your knee and make your leg kick. I was a simple child. Um, and I would, uh, I would do that at school. I would sit at my desk and I would hit my knee uh, and, you know, my leg would go and I would try really hard to keep my leg still and I'd hit it and it'd just move a little bit. And I was determined to try and do this. Uh, and uh, uh, clearly I wasn't paying very much attention in school either. But I was, uh, I, I was fascinated that my nerves would do that to me. It didn't even seem, I didn't quite understand how that worked, but I knew that, I knew that I was working how I was supposed to. I really wanted one of those knee hammers. Um, I just thought that would be the best. But, um, but that is not the case with people who are dead. They, they wouldn't respond like that. You can poke and prod anyone who's dead and nothing will happen. They can't do anything. They can't respond in any way. And that is, obviously, we're not talking about physical death here. We're talking about spiritual death. And yet, when you look in the rest of the verses, it's not, it's not exactly as you might think. When you think of spiritual death and compare it to how we think of physical death, you might think, well, there's, no, there's just no spirituality whatsoever. But the words that we have here, though we were dead, you know, in verse 2, it talks about how we were walking and following. We seem to have legs of some sort that carry us around places. It's talking about our desires and our passions. Getting into verse 3, we're not, we're not dead spiritually in the sense that we can do nothing at all, but um, we're dead really in our relationship to God. We are not able we were not able to respond to God in any way. We weren't able to see Him, to see Christ revealed in Scripture and respond in any kind of positive way. We were completely dead to that. There was, there was no joy in the gospel for us that would have been incapable of us. And if you look, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins. The idea here is describing the sort of sphere or location in which we dwelt. We had this dwelling in the midst of transgressions and sins. Sins, the, the, the essential definition of a sin is, uh, and this is how they understood it at the time, was falling short of the mark. And so that was, that was the nature of our lives. We were spiritually dead. We were incapable of... Responding to God, 
And we lived, we resided in just this, this sphere of sinfulness. Literally, before you were a Christian, or if you are not a Christian, your current state is one where all you can do is sin. Does understand that? There are no other options. And there were no options for you who are believers. Everything that you did was sinful. You were completely incapable of bringing any kind of glory to God. All you did was sin. This usually, this usually irritates at least some people. Well, wait a minute. You know, there's, and oftentimes there'll be a grand comparison about this time, right? Well, I was not a murderer. Um, right? That's usually the, the highest on our list of people who we are not like and, and, and generally despise. They are worse than us. Murderers followed by a close second uh, uh, comes uh, uh, people of a different political viewpoint, right? That's usually second followed close behind by fans of a different team, right? All you UCLA fans, I see you out there. I'm watching you. Um, but that's how we think. But that is, um, that is not really the idea here. Obviously, there are different levels of sin, but there is just one state of sin. Does that make sense? I want you to imagine a battlefield that is ridden with corpses, right? All these people who are dead. And imagine two corpses over here and one over here. I want you to imagine one of these corpses elbowing his buddy saying, look at that guy, man. He is messed up. Uh, right? he, is, he is way worse than we are. And uh, what, what would his buddy say to him, assuming corpses could talk? He would say, yeah, yeah, but we're all dead. Right? That's not, we're not really in a better state. He might look worse than us, but we're all dead and completely incapable of life in any sense. And that is the idea here. Those sins do have certain weight, and it is possible. You can do certain societal goods, sure, but it doesn't bring God any glory, and you are just as much in the state of sin. Not only were you dead in trespasses of sins, but you were following after sin, right? Now we're going to get into not just this general overview of what sin was like, but we're going to describe your desires, what you were doing, what you were following after. Look in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This is an astounding statement, I think, when you think about the world and how many different viewpoints there are, about how many different ideas there are about, you know, what is right and wrong and how we should live and types of governments. And there are people from every different country doing a million different things. And yet Paul is able to easily summarize the entire world together. He's sort of able to lump them all and say there is a general course that the world is following. Every single person on earth, every single person who is part of the world is following this same general course. It's the same with everyone. They have, collectively, no love for God. Every, every idea that they've had, every idea um, that they will ever have, essentially amounts to the same thing, and that's selfishness. They have no desire to give glory to God. And in fact, that is exactly how the Ephesian believers were, and that was exactly how you were, according to this text. Following the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air. And you guys know who this is. It should be, at least you should have an immediate hunch. This is, in fact, talking about Satan. That's who it's talking. And so the whole world, uh, or, or uh, every, every previous believer was following after the world, and they were literally following the prince of the power of the air. Every believer, you, in your former life, as it were, were following the prince of the power 
of the air. The power here, this is, this is literally referring to demonic forces. Um, and Satan is prince over them. John 12 describes Satan as, as a ruler. It's the, it's the same word that was used many, many times in the Old Testament to talking about kings and rulers that, that ruled different lands. And Satan is the ruler of these demons. And they rule the air that's, that's not just sort of the air around the earth. It's not just the atmosphere, but it, but it implies this realm of thought that they are sort of this prevalent influence throughout the entire world. And that's what we all followed. I'll tell you, it's kind of a downer of a passage so far, isn't it? Um, there, is, there is just sin upon sin upon sin that the world is described as, as doing. And in fact, look at this. At the end of verse, at the end of verse 2, the, the prince of the power of the air is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is in some way actively working in non-Christians right now. He's working to, to control and manipulate, to dominate as much as he can their thought patterns and, 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 and what they like and what they do and most especially what they don't do. Satan is very, very concerned, not just with what we will do, but we, what we are willing not to do. And then in verse 3, Paul says that among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. We were following our passions. We literally did whatever we wanted. We did whatever we desired, and were by nature children of wrath. And the meaning of this children of wrath, the idea here, is that it was natural, it would have been normal, it would have been fitting and suitable Everyone who is by nature a children of wrath, it would have been suitable for them to receive wrath. That's the idea here, is that God, if God was in heaven and in his holiness thinking about how he would pour out wrath on a person who was by nature children of wrath, it would have been completely normal and right and just for that to have happened. God's wrath is rightly burning towards certain people. And I, and, and I can't help but turn toward Revelation 19. Um, you, don't need to, you don't need to turn there. I can, just, I can just read this for you. It's one of, I feel like, one of the most chilling passages on wrath. And then I saw heaven, uh, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
This is a description of the wrath that's stored up. And the reason Paul is writing this, and the reason I am trying to describe it as much as I can, do you guys, do you guys get the list here? This is, this is just three verses, and he's packed it with so much. Dead in sins, following the course of the world, following Satan himself, a son of disobedience, living according to the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By nature, children of wrath, God was, God was storing up wrath for us. And that is why Paul is writing this. He, he, he is not so much trying to describe the world at large, though he is doing that. Don't get me wrong. He is actually explaining how the world is and how God's wrath is just against them because of their hatred and disobedience to God. But more than anything else, the reason why he's writing this is to remind believers of their salvation. He wants to remind the church about what God saved them from. And I wonder if this is how you think about your sin. It is my hope this morning that you will in some way more fully realize the seriousness of sin and that that will cause you to worship God because of his salvation. Sin is serious. You deserved wrath. When you think, when you think about these, if your first reaction, uh, talking about just the, the, the rampant sinfulness of the entire world, if your first reaction is, man, I know someone like that, then you might be in trouble. I don't want you to ignore who this is specifically directed at, and that is you. God wants you to know what you we're saved from. Before you can have a Savior, you need to be in trouble. And we were in so much trouble. We are in desperate need of grace. The woman at the well in John 4 is one of my favorite passages. And Jesus has this whole conversation with her. They talk about living water. And at one point, he confronts her about sin, about a, a man that she's living with and she's not married to, and she admits it. And uh, she goes on to believe that he's a Messiah and eventually goes back to the town and tells this is such an interesting line I always thought. She goes back, and her response to the town that she lived in is, I met the Messiah, and he told me everything I ever did. And if you read commentaries on that, they'll typically say, well, the conversation was just longer than what's recorded in Scripture. Clearly, they talked about more than just what's there. And I'm sure that's actually what happened, but I can't help but think when I, Jesus specifically confronted her on her sin. And when I read passages like this in Ephesians 2 or other ones like uh, Romans 3 or even later in, in, in Ephesians in chapter 4, it's going to talk about how uh, we, were, we were darkened in our heart and ignorant. I, I, I read that and I feel like the woman at the well. I feel like someone just told me everything I ever did. And I wonder if that's how you feel when you read passages about sin. I want you to realize the greatness of your Savior's work. You needed him so badly. You're lost. You're dead. And in verse 4, one of the great contrasts in Scripture, but God, 
but God. And, and verses 1 through 7, it's one continuous sentence. In, in, in the original, it's, it's one big, long sentence. And this is actually the first time the subject of the sentence comes up, right? Before, it was talking about, and you, you were this, you were that, you were that way. But you, that is to say us, we were not the subject. We were not the main point of this sentence. The, the main point doesn't really start in verse 5. We're not even going to get the main, or verse 4, we're not even going to get the main verb until another verse or two. But God, the point here is to talk about what God has done. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So this is, so we get, before we even know what God has done, we're immediately told his motivation. God was rich in mercy and had great love toward us. When I was, when I was growing up, we had something called the Disney Afternoon. I don't know if anyone's my age and remembers that. They had, it was a series of cartoons that would come on in the afternoon, and they were, they were Disney cartoons. And I loved the Disney Afternoon, but we weren't really allowed to watch TV much in my house. So Fridays, I could watch it. And one of my favorite shows was DuckTales. I don't know if you guys know the show. There's Scrooge McDuck and Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Scrooge McDuck owned a building. This was, I guess, his office. He owned a building that he referred to as a money bin. It was, at least how they drew it on the cartoon, about the size of a skyscraper, about as tall as a skyscraper, and as wide as a city block. This was huge. It had a money sign on the outside of the building, and it was filled to the brim with gold coins. And you guys know what Scrooge did with this, or at least some of you do. He had a platform at the very top that had a diving board on it, and he would swim luxuriously through his gold coins. In retrospect, maybe this wasn't the best message for children. I'm not sure. Um, but this was what Scrooge did with his money, is he swam through it. Can you imagine that kind of richness? Can you imagine owning a skyscraper stuffed with cash? That, that just, just at your disposal to do, yeah, take a shower in it, right? Just why not? Um, that's how much money he had. And that is, that is a hint. That is a, just a smallest, eensiest idea of the richness of God. We're talking about a God who is infinitely rich, but not in, not, not with gold coins. He is rich in mercy. Mercy and love directed specifically toward us. And it's not as if God looked at any of us and thought, yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah, I'll take, I'll take, you know, some of those and some of those, right? And they, they seem like, they seem like the best of the bunch, right? It's not like he was picking vegetables and looking for the really ripe ones, right? It's just that he looked and his heart, in his, in his heart, he loved us. Despite anything that we did, he was just so rich in mercy. His love overflowed so much that, look in verse five, even when we were dead in trespasses, we didn't at any point start shaping up. It's not like, okay, we were dead, but man, we worked really hard, right? It's like doing homework and I'll do my spiritual, you know, push-ups. And, and one day, one day I will be presentable enough, at least, to God that he'll, he'll desire me or choose me or anything. No, 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 no. We were completely and utterly in sin when he acted on our behalf. We didn't deserve it. 
I, that I, I, we're going to keep coming back to that, guys. We did not deserve it. God saved us, and we will see. Verse 7 is, is smiling at us right now. One day we're going to get there. Um, it, is, it is explaining why he did all this. Did you ever think about why God saved you? It wasn't, as we just saw, because you were great. You were wretched. You were, in his mind, because of your spiritual state, not very attractive. You had nothing to offer God whatsoever, but he was so merciful. He was so kind that he saved us. That's what we see in verse 5. When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. Let me ask you, what is... What do corpses really need, huh? Right? Since we're dead in our trespasses, we'll keep going with this analogy, right? Imagine the corpses on the battlefield, and I thought, I want to do something nice for these corpses. It'll be nice. What I'll do is I'll clean them up, brush their hair, right? The one that was really bad, I'll shove his insides back in. We'll be great. Um, and that, that, corpse, that corpse will be good looking. Everything will be better, right? What is the problem? He's still dead, right? What, what, what a dead person needs, the only real benefit that a dead person can receive is to be made alive. And that is precisely what God has done. He has, because of his mercy and his love, saved us by his grace. We see this great sort of blending and interrelationship between mercy and love and grace in these verses. They're all, they're all involved in our salvation. God loved us, and we were in desperate need to be made alive. And that is exactly what he did. He made us alive, and he didn't just raise us and leave us, as it were, in the graveyard, right? He didn't raise us up and say, well, okay, at least you're alive now. That's... that's better than it was, and just leave us alone. He wasn't finished with this. Look at this. It's not just that he made us alive when we were dead by our own will and volition. I said in verse 6, he raised us up, notice, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. This is what Christ, this is what God has done for us in Christ. He raised us from the dead and then seated us in the heavenly places. We were made alive, he raised us, and he seated us. And you look, just, just a few verses before we started here, back in chapter 1, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And he was praying that they would know something. In verse 19, he already prayed that they would have the knowledge of Christ. And in verse 19, he prayed that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you guys see what's going on here? Is God is saying that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that ascended him into heaven and seated him at the right hand of God, that is the same power that is working on your behalf to in fact do the exact same things. We were dead in our trespasses, but not only have we been made alive, but we have been somehow inexplicably, we're going to ascend into heaven. And we're going to be, it literally says, seated with us in, uh, and seated with us. He raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We are going to be exalted along with Christ. We're going to be seated with him. 
And in fact, this is in the past tense. This is, this is talking about it as if it's already happened. Do you notice that? You were raised and seated. The, the, the Greeks, they had this idea that they would think of the past tense. There are certain things, if they, were fut- if they were going to happen in the future, and it was so certain that it would happen, they would talk about it in the past tense. Anything that was so certain to happen one day, they, they, they would talk about it as if it had already happened. That's how certain our being raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places will be. But there is a sense in which this has already happened, right? There is a sense in which we have been raised and seated in heaven. And it is primarily in a spiritual sense. One day it'll be physically, but our hearts really... God has taken them and, and, and put them in heaven. That is part of what happens with salvation is suddenly and all at once, when we're saved, we become homesick, really. We become homesick for heaven. And that's what it means to have already been raised and seated in the right hand uh, with Christ in the heavenly places. It's that our hearts suddenly long to be somewhere else. Our hearts are in heaven. They desire spiritual things, heavenly things. There's a song that was written, man, quite a few years back called I Left My Heart in San Francisco. You guys know the song. Um, and, and, you know what he, and you know what he means, right? That he longs for San Francisco. What is that, Tony Bennett? He longs for San Francisco. He wishes that he were there. He wants to do the sort of things that he would do in San Francisco. He wants to talk to people that act uh, like San Franciscans act, right? He wants to be there. He misses it. He longs for it. He left his heart there, and that is what God has done for us. It's not that we left our hearts in heaven. It's that God placed them there. We could have never got there on our own to have left them there. It is completely the grace of God that's allowed us to be raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. And then in verse 7, we're going, to skip to, um, we're going to skip to the future here. There's still one more aspect that's going to talk about our present condition, um, the, 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 the present salvation that we have. But it jumps forward here in 7 when we're talking about really an ultimate purpose here. Why did God save you? What was the purpose of it? And in verse 7 it says, so that he did all of this. He saved you from all of this. He raised you and seated you so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. The point of all of this is that in the coming ages, and I'll tell you, when I first read this and was first studying this, I thought of this as really a technical term. I was thinking that it either referred to the millennial kingdom or, or, or maybe the eternal state where we would reside in heaven, but it's not. It's the, the ages here, the fact that it's plural sort of tweaks it a little bit. The coming ages literally started as soon as you became a believer. As soon as you became a believer, the coming ages, as it were, started, and they will continue throughout eternity. So the coming ages for anyone who has saved has already begun, but they will keep coming and coming and coming. And so the point is that for all eternity, you are saved so that for all eternity, God might show the riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. That is God's purpose. He wants his kindness to be known. We were dead. 
We were completely without life spiritually and he reached down, he rescued us, he saved us so that everyone, or specifically us, so that we would understand and know his unbelievable kindness toward us. The kindness of God. You don't really hear that talked about that much. You hear words like grace and mercy. But this is specifically talking about talking about kindness. This is what he wanted. And really, what he wants is for himself to be known. He wants us, for the rest of eternity, to know and make known what he did. He wants us to know and make known his glory. We're going to come back to that idea and how you can do that, but we're going to real quick bump back to the present. Different stages in the Christian life. For by grace, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm sure many of you have those verses memorized. They're fantastic verses. But for anyone for anyone who is not a Christian here, this is particularly good news. We finally figured out exactly how we can receive the grace of God. Before we were talking about we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses but God saved us. But, 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 but how? How is it that we, can, that we can get the graciousness of God? It's through faith. God's graciousness comes through faith. And faith is a simple concept. It is simply believing. It's believing in Christ. It's understanding who he is and what he did and accepting the gift that is offered to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Don't, if you're stuck on those first three verses, don't ignore verses 8 and 9. There is nothing that you can do, no matter how many good things you're doing. If you're not a believer, all you do is sin and it doesn't in any way earn you the favor of God. Grace comes through faith. And God designed it that way. Look at the text. God designed it that way so that no one would be able to boast. He didn't want us to be able to earn it so that no one could say that they earned their salvation. He didn't want people boasting because he wanted to boast. Do you guys see that? He wanted to boast. We are his workmanship. It says, God made us. He wanted, and going back to verse 7, he wanted the work that he did to be known. He wanted his own kindness and graciousness to be known. He wanted his own power and glory to be made known in the saints. That is uh, uh, the future purpose, and and really verse 10 is the last uh, future stage in the Christian life. We were saved not only so that in the future we would show God's kindness, but he saved us. He did not save us by good works. We didn't earn our salvation. But in verse 10, we we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The idea here is that while you cannot do good works in order to earn salvation, good works don't result in salvation, certainly, certainly God has ordained it so that salvation produces good works. He planned them for you. He ordained them beforehand that you should walk in, that you should walk in them. But I want to go back just real quickly 
real quickly here in verse 7, this idea that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is what God wants. This is what God wants from you right now. The coming ages, if you are a believer, have begun. It has begun. And so my question to you is, is this happening? Is God's incredible graciousness toward you, is the rescue operation that God ordained to bring you from sin and to himself and to seat you in heaven with Christ and to ultimately exalt you, is that, are you making that known? I want to talk about two aspects of this. First, when we come to corporate worship, right? The idea of worship, because this is what God wants. He wants his greatness to be made known, and that is essentially worship. When we worship God for who he is and what he's done, when we ascribe honor and adoration to God, and how can you do anything but honor God and adore God once you realize exactly what it is that he's done? In an ideal world, Sunday morning would be like Christmas, right? You guys all would have woke up giggling, right? Excited to come. It would be the most exciting thing that you can do. We are coming all together. There's a bunch of people just like me. We have been saved by grace through faith, and we get to worship our God together. How is this not the most exciting part of your week? How is this not what you want to do more than anything else? I get excited about sports and all kinds of strange and weird things when there is a God in heaven who has saved me unto good works. And I, every Sunday, have specifically blotted out this time, blocked out this time so that I could worship him. Do you come on Sunday morning ready to worship God? Are you excited? Do you have, do, do you anticipate it on Saturday night? Do you prepare, okay, how, how am I going to get the best worship experience? Do you come and, and, and think, okay, you know, fe- fellowship is good, but I'll do that after I've worshiped so I can put God first? Do you, do you try and foster an attitude of worship because God demands that from you? He created you. He saved you specifically for that purpose. And it is so easy to treat church like a social club. There are a lot of people that I like here. I like you guys. And it's fun. I come and you guys, you know, I get to see people and I get to hang out with people. But the reason I come is to worship my Savior. And I think all of us can afford to remember that and act like that on Sunday morning. When you sing, are, 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 you, are, are the people in front of you embarrassed for how loud you're singing, right? When you are listening to the word, are you soaking it in? Um, are, are you, you know, your, your children will notice this. Your spouse will notice this. If you, uh, your, your friends will notice this. If you have an attitude of hunger toward the word, that is the best testimony of God's graciousness in your life. There is no better way to display the worthiness and the graciousness of God other than showing with your attitude and your actions and your words that God is more important than anything else. Come on Sunday ready to worship. That's just corporate worship. You have the rest of the week too, right? This is, you spend an hour and 10 minutes. It's technically what our service is. Um, I'm not sure when the last time we were an hour and 10 minutes, but we'll work on that. Uh, but you know, then you, then you go to Bible hour and you got another hour. You all told you might be two, two and a half hours here. This is a small portion of your week. What do you do the rest of the week? Do you love to pray? 
When you, when, you, when you are too busy or you forget, do you miss it? Do you love God's word? I know not everyone loves to read, but even, you know, do, do, you, do you wish you long to love it more? Do you wish you, understand, you understood it better? And so are you, are you trying to, to, to figure it out as best you can? Do you, do you love accountability? Do you seek it out? Do you love the wisdom of others? Would the people you live with describe you as someone who loves the Lord because of what you do rather than in spite of it? God saved you so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Show the riches of God's grace in your life, whether it be on Sunday morning or throughout your week. God is worthy. He is infinitely worthy of your worship.